Well, good morning, church. How are you? It's good to have you here today. Welcome. It's your first time with us. Welcome to Double Oak Community Church. We are excited. Uh, about who God is and what he's doing in us. And I'm glad we get to do that together. Hey, before we jump into the sermon for today, I did want to let you know about uh, something that's very important for us as a church. Uh, this summer, we are making sure we get back to all uh, of our normal mission trips. We've been doing this for years, and these are opportunities for us to really take the love of Christ outside of the city uh, and really sometimes out, even out of the country to say we want to pour out on other people the love that God has poured into us. And so you have an opportunity to join with us as we do that. Uh, here at Double O, we try not to have like, you know, just a thousand different mission partners. We really do like to laser in on a few uh, so that we can build deeper and long-term relationships uh, with the folks that we go see. So these trips are our longstanding trips. That if you, you'll meet a lot of people in the church who have gone on these trips before. Uh, and we often get real excited to go back and see people that we know so we can have a long-term impact. But here are your opportunities. Uh, first off, Choctaw, the Choctaw Indian Reservation is in Philadelphia, Mississippi, just next door. Uh, this is a trip where uh, we go and, and do a VBS. We're really ministering to the kids on the Native American Reservation there. So you have an opportunity to really serve uh, there. Uh, secondly is Yash, Romania. Uh, this is a, a trip I actually go on. Uh, we've been doing this for years. We head over to Eastern Europe, uh, partnering with the Richard Wormbrand Christian School, uh, and we put on a youth camp for teenagers uh, there. And then thirdly, Ensenada, Mexico. This is working with Yugo Ministries. A lot of you guys are going. It's one of our largest trips. Uh, we head uh, down to uh, Mexico where we are building houses. Uh, we are partnering with Yugo Ministries and we have an opportunity to just physically build uh, lodging for different families that are there. Uh, and so look, three very different kinds of trips, uh, but really something for everybody. So we've got some informational meetings that are coming up. I'll go back to the first one. I think, is there one for Choctaw first? or is that next? There we go. Uh, so uh, some informational meetings. Uh, if you want to know about these trips, this isn't a commitment that you're going. You're just saying, hey, I would like to learn more uh, than what I can tell you in just a couple minutes on Sunday morning. We've got some meetings for you. So on Sunday, February 26th at 1215 over in the cafe, you can learn about the Choctaw trip. Uh, P.S. This trip has a three-day and a five-day option. So if you've never been on a mission trip before, this is a good one to start with because it's nearby uh, and you can even just do that three-day option. Kind of put your toe in the water, if you will, uh, and say, hey, I want to try that out. Uh, most people, once they do that, though, they say, hey, I really like this. They click over into five, but you have that option. Secondly, uh, 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 Yash, Romania, uh, this is also going to be on the 26th. We'll be up in the student worship room. Uh, and actually, my friend Christy from Romania will be here next month, so we'll get to hear from him as well. Uh, but if you want to know more about this trip, this trip is more expensive. Uh, in fact, our most expensive trip because of the airfare getting over there and back. It's also the longest trip. Uh, the dates actually this week have even shifted. There's some things going on over there. It'll be early earlier in June. Uh, so those dates have shifted since the time we even made this slide. Uh, but it'll be kind of mid-June is what we're looking at there. It's a 10-day trip, uh, but uh, be looking for that. And then finally, uh, Ensenada, Mexico. Uh, look, this is a great opportunity, not simply to build things. Alan, you sent me, uh, um, I think, earlier this week, uh, just talking about, where's Alan? There he goes. Um, just talking about the relationships that you build. This is not simply about building structures. It's about building relationships with the people that you're building the house for, with the people in that ministry, the people in that area. Uh, and so it's a really incredible opportunity, not just for you, but really for, for your whole family. Uh, but if you want to know about that, Sunday, February 12th, 1215 uh, p.m. in C25 and 26, that's over in our community building across the street. Uh, these are meetings for you. So put these on your calendar. Uh, check your, your announcement uh, text that we send you guys after all, 
service on Sundays. Put that on your calendars. You can say, hey, I want to know more about this. Be praying about this. See if the Lord might want to send you out on a short-term mission trip this summer. Listen, it is impactful not only for the kingdom, it's impactful for you. And so I would love for you to consider to go. So be praying about that. Put these on your calendar. And I can't wait to see what the Lord does through us this summer. It's going to be a lot of fun. It really will. But now, grab your Bibles, if you will. Let's go to John 15, verse 1. John 15, verse 1 is where we're going to be today. Same place we were last week. Uh, as we're delving into this brand new sermon series, Repent, Abide, Obey, Enjoy. John chapter 15, verse 1 is where we're going to be in just a second. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John chapter 15, verse 1 is where we're going to be in just a moment. Uh, while you are turning there, let me ask you a question. What is your most embarrassing moment? All right, got that? Now, share them with me. Everybody, yeah? No, you don't want to do that, right? Anybody feeling just a desire and urge to get back out and get more coffee and then make a break for it? Anybody? Uh, I, I will go on record as saying, I hate this question. I hate it, right? I don't like it when people ask me. Don't ask me, by the way. I will not answer it. I will make up something. I don't like it. I don't know why anybody likes this question, right? It's uncomfortable to be asked the question, what's your most embarrassing moment? Why do you tell that to the class? That's terrible, right? It's terrifying to be asked, what is your most embarrassing moment? It brings up just a very uncomfortable feeling. This is why, by the way, I do not enjoy awkward humor. I don't. I don't like The Office. My wife has been trying to get me to watch for like, I don't know, like 10 years. I don't like it. Uh, I just the whole awkward thing, I don't go for it. Not because it's evil. I just don't like it. This is why also I refuse to watch the first three episodes of American Idol each season, right? Did you know this show is still going on? 21 seasons, American Idol, still running. If you haven't seen this show, where have you been? Um, but, but look, it's a show where everybody tries out to be the next American Idol, but the first three episodes are just people who are terrible, right? People who think they can sing and they cannot. And they make sure to film all the worst ones. Here's the worst part about these episodes. This isn't a joke. These people think they can sing and they are embarrassing themselves on national television. I'm embarrassed for them, right? I mean, that's what we feel. It's like, oh, stop, stop, don't do this. Just don't, don't, that's terrible. You are terrible. Do you not know that you're terrible, right? Just stop it. Why are you broadcasting this? Because it's not even that they're doing a bad job. <laughs> they're proud of it, right? They're proud of it and want to tell you, like, please, just, just don't do that, right? It's, it's uncomfortable. Uh, and look, that's, that's why we actually like to talk about it though, right? Why, you might say, okay, then why do people ask? Tell me your most uncomfortable you know, moment. Well, it's, it's terrible when you don't know what's going on, but after the fact, if you're among friends, you can laugh about it, right? These people aren't laughing at you, they're laughing with you. And so you can actually look back, usually, uh, and laugh about it uh, and say, okay, that was silly, you know, and I, I hate that, I did that, but at least we're, we're beyond that now, and I recognize that the people here, they, they love me, and so they're not laughing at me, they're laughing with me. Uh, but it is that feeling, uncomfortable that it is, uh, that is actually necessary for our spiritual growth. Sometimes God's going to ask us uncomfortable questions, and we need that in order to grow spiritually. So we're in a brand new sermon series, Repent, Abide, Obey, and Enjoy. Now look, I'm going to go ahead and confess, not my most creative sermon series title, right? I could have come up with something a little bit more creative. However, the reason we're just giving you four words is because I want these four words to be emblazoned upon your brain. Whenever you find yourself stuck in your spiritual journey, we ought to go back to these four words, repent, abide, obey, enjoy. This is the path to spiritual joy. 
If you were not here last week, I really would encourage you, I don't always tell you this, but I would encourage you to go not just listen, but to watch last week's sermon where we built a pathway from way over in the corner from repentance to abiding to obeying to enjoying. God wants to get us to spiritual joy. You say, well, then how do we do that? Oh, we would really love to kind of start with abide, but we can't. Uh, if we're really going to start in this process, it must start with repentance. And so this morning, we're really going to delve into what that looks like. So look at John 15, starting in verse 1. Listen to what it says. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear even more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide away, he is, abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. All right, let's stop right there. So right off the bat, you say, Adam, I see the abide thing. It seems like abide is the place we ought to start. Abide in me, abide in me, abide in me, abide in me. This seems to be key, and it is, but we have to start with repentance. You might say, well, Adam, I don't understand that because I don't see the word repent in this passage. That's correct. The exact word is not there, but it is here in the text. Look at verse 2 and notice what it says. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Okay, so if you're not a gardener, pruning is when you shape up a plant, a tree, a shrub, right, to, to make it look pretty, that it might be healthy. You are literally going to cut away branches that are either dead or they're growing in the wrong direction. You don't want this plant wasting time, energy, life on branches that we do not need or no longer needed anymore. So you will literally cut those off and shape it to where it is not only healthier, it's more beautiful. But carry the metaphor out. God says, I'm the gardener and he's pruning us. If we're believers, God says, I'm going to be constantly pruning you. That means that he's going to be cutting things out of our lives. If we're walking in Christ, there's going to be a continual process where God's going to say, hey, we, we need to nip this in the bud, quite literally. All right, we got to cut this off, okay? You need to say that this is not where you need to grow. I want to encourage you to grow in this direction. I'm going to discourage you from that direction. This has to be cut out of your life. And that is painful at times, but it is for our good. But then also look at verse 6 and notice what it says there. It says, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. All right, that's a little stark. Don't miss it. Don't jump over it. Don't assume it's not there. Don't minimize it. God's helping us understand. Listen, the only place you find true everlasting life is in an abiding relationship with me. He is life itself. So when you cut yourself off from that life, like a branch that's fallen from the tree, it's going to wither and die. It can no longer produce leaves. It will no longer produce fruit. It's no longer good for anything than just to be gathered up and thrown into the fire as fuel. Make the metaphor. When we refuse to abide in the Lord, we will never be spiritually fruitful. 
We will ultimately die. We will perish away from the Lord. Now, he's not trying to scare them. Remember, he said, I abide in you, you abide in me. You're already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. He's not trying to scare them, but he's telling them of a very specific spiritual truth. There is no life apart from Jesus Christ. Dig down into that and see whether you believe it or not. There is no life apart from Jesus. That's what he's saying. And so the only pathway is abiding. But if you don't listen, those, those branches, they're gathered up and burned. And so what that what it tells us is, is that we ought to constantly be in a process of repentance, not just at the beginning of our relationship with the Lord, but constantly in our life. Incidentally, this was the very first thing that, that uh, Luther wanted to talk about in the 95 Theses. Uh, Martin Luther, who started the Protestant Reformation, when he nailed his 95 Theses to the door at Wittenberg, 95 different things he wanted to dispute the, within the Catholic Church. Look at the very first one he puts on there. It says, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he meant that the entire life of believers should be one of repentance. Our whole life. We had to constantly be in this mode of repenting. Why? Because God is pruning us. He's helping us to be more fruitful, that we might find that, uh, that spiritual joy. So no matter whether you are just starting your life with Christ or you've been doing this for decades, we ought always to be in an attitude of repentance. But in order to understand repentance, we need to define our terms because look, our culture is changing. And so you might've even come in here with some interesting ideas from the culture. Let's make sure we understand biblically what we're talking about. First off, we are repenting of sin. What is sin? Sin is a no-no word in our culture. People don't wanna talk about sin anymore. Uh, but sin is when you and I disobey God's will, his command, and his ways. Sin is when we disobey God's will, his commands, and his ways. We know what God says is right, and we just say, nope, not doing that. I will do the opposite of that. I will ignore your commands, either to not do something or to do something. I'm going to ignore that and do whatever I want. You are disobeying God's will, command, and ways. And then here's what the Bible tells us about sin. The wages of sin is death, period, end of story, Always. There is no sin that does not lead to death. This is Romans 6, 3.23. All wages of sin, it is death. There is no sin that does not bring death in our lives. Even if it's a little sin, well, that's just a little death. There is no sin that you can say, hey, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm getting away with it. All sin leads to death, period. Now, do you believe that? Like, think that through. Because for some of us, we put a question mark there. We say, Adam, I don't know if all sin leads to death, because I got to be honest, I'm doing some sinning right now, and I'm not dead. <laughs> I kind of think like I'm getting away with it. Here's the deal. You will never get away with it. No one ever gets away with it. Look, smoke all you want. It's going to strip years off your life and kill you. You think that's not going to happen? Well, I smoked, I didn't die. Not immediately. It will kill you ultimately. Every sin you and I commit brings death in your life. <laughs> Satan is fine for you to think you're gonna get away with it. You're just gonna invest more in sin. The bill always comes due and it will destroy everything you love. Don't ever underestimate sin. Don't ever think you have fooled God, your friends, your family, everybody else. Sin leads to death always, period, end of story. If you don't believe that, 
just wait, it's gonna come due in your life. Every single time. But here's the other thing about sin. Sin is not simply the breaking of a rule, it's the breaking of a relationship. Sin is not just the breaking of a rule, it's the breaking of a relationship. See, so this is one of the reasons we justify our sin. We're going, Adam, it's just a rule, right? I'm not killing anybody, it's not a big deal. It's, it's like a speed limit. Okay, yes, I know it says 70, but you can go 75, they're not gonna pull you over. All right, so you kind of figured it out. So you can break that, right? Look, it's fine. It's fine, no, it's not fine. Listen, it's not about just breaking a rule. You're breaking a relationship. You are wounding your relationship with God. This is why, by the way, you cannot sin and abide at the same time. You cannot consistently and purposely sin and abide in Christ at the same time. You are, you are marring the relationship. You don't always break it, but you mar it. This is why we have to keep repenting, by the way. Sometimes people ask, Adam, I'm a believer. I'm saved. How come I have to keep repenting? Did I lose my salvation? I got to get it back again? No, 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 no. When you and I sin as Christians, we don't lose our salvation, but you have absolutely messed with the relationship. It is strained. If you've ever had a fight with your spouse or a parent or your best friend, you understand what this is like. Let's say you've done something wrong uh, against your spouse, parents, best, best friend. Okay, you're probably not, you're not gonna stop being the, the, the child of your parents. You're not gonna stop being married and hopefully you're not gonna stop being best friends, but, but things are not okay. You're not in a good spot in your friendship. And if that continues, that can get even worse and it might even break the, the relationship. You can't really enjoy one another until you repent and you say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, I'm sorry for what I did. I am sorry, can you forgive me? And guess what then? Okay, great, well then we, we can work on that, we can heal, and then we get to move forward together. So even as believers, we have to consistently repent because when we sin, we, it's marring our relationship, and so we have to repent. But you might also say, but Adam, I, I know some people, they don't feel like repenting. They, they, they see it as sin, but they don't feel like repenting, and so they don't. They say, Adam, I, I, maybe it's just not sin, but I mean, I know God says it's sin, but I don't feel like repenting. Well, this is one of the moments in life where your feelings do not matter. I'm so sorry. They don't. It does not matter how you feel here. Imagine a psychopath, okay, who turns into a serial killer, and he goes out and kills a bunch of people. When we catch that guy and we ask him, how do you feel about all these people that you've killed? Do you know what he's going to say? Fine. Fine. Do you know why? Because he's a psychopath. He is not well. He does not care. We would not then look at that person and say, well, he feels fine about it. So if he's fine about it, I mean, it's good, right? I mean, he feels fine. He doesn't feel any, uh, he's not upset about his sins. So we'll just let him go, right? No, you're still going to jail. It doesn't matter how you feel about it. You have still sinned. Guys, just because you say, well, I don't feel like repenting doesn't change the fact that we need to constantly repent because that sin's gonna lead to death regardless. So we need to understand what sin is, right? But here's the second thing. We need to understand what the word repent means because it's not a normal word. We don't typically say repent. So what does the Bible tell us when it says repent? Well, there are multiple, both Hebrew and Greek words that express this concept of repentance. In the Old Testament, these words typically have the, the idea of turning Right? So I am turning away from one thing and to another. I am turning away from sin and towards the Lord. All right? So I recognize what I'm doing wrong, but there's a, a turning involved. 
in the New Testament in Greek, you've got three different words there, but the main one really talks about a change of mind or a change of attitude. All right, so it's not simply a change of actions, that's necessary, but it's also a, a change of understanding. It's a change in the way I see things, a change in the way I understand things. Imagine that moment where you watch that video of you performing on American Idol and you, like the rest of the country, goes, oh no. And you realize that thing you thought was great, now you see it in a different light and you go, oh, oh no. Well, you've had a change of perspective. You've had a change of attitude. You say, I don't see it the way I used to see it. I now see things like God sees things. There's a change of mind when it comes to repentance. Now, that change of mind is incredibly important, right? There has to be this change of mind because if not, uh, we will look at repentance uh, poorly. We we will misunderstand repentance. There's a couple ways you can misunderstand repentance. For some people, you misunderstand it because we say repentance is just penance, we think that repentance is just penance. Now, if you grew up Catholic, you know that word, penance. And the concept here is, is that you, if, when you do something wrong, you've got to do something right to kind of make up for it. I'm oversimplifying wildly, but, but this is the, the basic concept here. Of like, yeah, God forgives you, but, but you've done wrong and you have to make it right. You've got to make amends. And, and so you have to do penance. So we're going to give you things you've got to do, a certain number of prayers or actions or, or you know, this thing you've got to do. But you've got to do penance to to make this right as if you and I can kind of work off our own sin, all right? But that is not what repentance means. This also is one of the things that made Martin Luther mad um, that really caused part of the Protestant Reformation. Um, Martin Luther was a Catholic priest, uh, and he was reading a brand new copy of the Greek New Testament, right? Typically, you read in the Latin Vulgate. Uh, It's a a Latin translation of the Bible. Uh, And it was made a a lot of years earlier. It did not have a lot of Greek manuscripts, which is the base original language. So when he's reading the the Greek original language, he realizes that the Catholic Bible has mistranslated this word repent as do penance. So literally in Scripture, and you can actually see this in a Catholic Bible right now, Instead of it saying repent and believe in the gospel, it says do penance and believe in the gospel. That is totally different. That is completely and totally different to say do penance and believe or repent and believe. You say, what's the difference? Well, I can do penance and still not repent. Let's take a thief, right? Uh, Let's imagine that there's somebody who is stealing, all right, and they, uh, they get caught. Right, so here's a thief, and they get caught. They actually admit it. They have to say, "I'm guilty" because we got irrefutable evidence. And they get caught, and they're going to go to jail. I have no idea what the penalty for for thievery is, but let's say they go to jail for three years. Right, they're not going away for life. They're going to go away for probably two, three years, but they're going to go and serve their time. Right, so they have done penance. They did the crime. They did the time, and they are now out. So they have done penance, but have they repented? Well, I don't know. They might have, they might not have, but I can't tell that simply by the fact that they have done the time. Let me show you what repentance looks like. This is Ephesians 4, 28. Paul's talking to Christians. He says, let the thief steal no longer, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Okay, that is repentance. Think about a thief. A thief steals because they say, I don't care that you have it. I want it. I don't care that it's yours. It's not yours anymore. I want to take it because I want it. Don't care if you like it. Don't care if you work for it. I will now steal it from you and I don't care. 
Okay, that is very different. Put that back up there. From this, then I'm saying, no, no, no. I want to do honest work with my own hands. And actually, I want to do extra work that I might give to those in need. I have gone from, I'm going to take whatever I want to how can I work harder to give more away. That is a change of mind. That is a change of perspective. That is seeing what I was doing, the way I see myself, the way I see life. There is a change here. There's been a repentance here, a change of mind that says, I I cannot do that. I I have repented before the Lord and now there has been a turning. There's been a, a change of mind in my life. All right, so repentance is not simply penance. It's a change of mind. Here's the second thing repentance is not. Repentance is not self-improvement. Repentance is not self-improvement. Remember, our culture does not like the concept of sin anymore. Our culture looks around and says, I am the center of all meaning. I define what is right and wrong. I define my own identity. I am not beholden to anybody. I'm not beholden to an authority. I'm not beholden to a culture. I'm not beholden to a family. I'm not beholden to anybody except myself. I define all of my reality. You can do whatever you want in your reality, but leave me alone. As long as we don't excessively mess with each other, we're all going to be fine, right? In that world, sin doesn't make sense. Because I don't want to admit that I'm wrong. To say that I'm wrong means that I have transcended some authority or law that is higher than I. I don't want to believe in that. So instead, what I will admit is I could do better. You know, I could do better. So I should probably just do better, all right? I can admit that I I have not done as good as I could have done. I admit that I failed at some times in the past. I admit that I need to get better uh, at doing a couple things. All of that is fine, but I don't want to ever admit I'm wrong. Hear me when I say this. The problem for us as humans is not that we're underdeveloped. The problem for us as humans is that we're wrong. We're sinful. That's the problem. The problem is we have not achieved our potential, we are killing our potential by sinning, by regretting, by, by ignoring the fact that I am a creature made by a creator. That idea where I'm the center of the universe denies the fact that I am not in control, that I didn't make myself. I have rejected the Lord. When it comes to repentance, I am not simply getting better. I'm not simply making myself better. This is not self-improvement. I have to recognize, wait a minute, he's king and I'm not. He's God and I'm not. Wait a minute, he's right and I'm not. Oh, that hurts. It destroys, it punctures that that little world we're trying to build for ourselves. This is why the world hates the concept of sin and is angry at us as believers is because it reminds them, hey, hey, this this, this made-up fantasy world you're creating, it's not real because we were created by a God and we were going to have to stand in judgment before him. We can't ignore this. And so sooner or later, we have got to recognize, hey, wait a minute, this is, this is not just self-improvement, all right? I have to repent. What does that mean? It means I come to God and say, God, you're right and I'm wrong. And so God, I'm not gonna move in this direction anymore. I'm gonna turn away from my sin, but God, I need your help. Would you help me here? Let's build it again. Okay, if I'm in the land of disobedience, I'm gonna sit over here and say, God, I, I'm wrong. I, I'm sorry. I have sinned against you. I need to abide. Will you, will you help me? But I'm turning away from the land of disobedience. I'm leaving the land of disobedience. I cannot continue in my sin. Instead, I say, God, would you, would you help me? Would you cleanse me? Would you heal me? Because I cannot save myself. 
that turning away from sin and turning to the Lord, to his grace and to his mercy is necessary for salvation. Now I gotta be real clear here for just a second because there are some people in the room and you might be here today who say, Adam, well, I've always been a Christian. I need you to listen to me when I tell you this. Uh, The Lord loves you, I love you. I hope you hear the heart which I say this. That is absolutely not true. It has never been true and it will never be true. There is not a person on the planet who can say, I have always been a Christian. That is impossible. You can say we're all sinners. That's true of everybody. But it has never been true for me, for you, for anybody, that we can say we've always been Christians. Now, what you might have meant was, I've always known about the Lord. And that can be true. Look, I'm raising my Bible, my, my, my daughter here at the church. Like many of you, we're raising our kids here at the church. My daughter is gonna not know a life without knowing about Jesus. Like I hope your kids do as well. They're gonna know about the Lord, but that doesn't mean she's saved any more than you were saved or I am saved. See, sooner or later, I gotta come to grips with the fact that I am a sinner and I, myself, not somebody else for me, I gotta choose to see it and say, God, I see my sin and I need help. Will you save me? There is no salvation without repentance. There is no salvation without repentance, which means there might be some of you who are saying, but Adam, I'm trying to be a good person. I believe you. Adam, I've been going to church my whole life. I believe you. That is not salvific. You cannot save yourself. Being a good person can't save you. Going to church can't save you. None of that can save you. Here's what saves when you and I turn away from our sin and ask God to do the saving because we cannot save ourselves. There is no salvation apart from that. And for all of us as believers, guess what? I can't fix myself either. When I find myself in the land of disobedience, I must repent that the Lord might save me. I, I wanna show you this because this is everywhere. I wish I had, I had more time and weeks to kind of go through all these different things. But, but let me just show you this all throughout the scriptures. Here's what it says in Mark chapter one, verses 14 and 15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. Here's the gospel. And saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The first word that Jesus preaches in the gospel is repent. We have to turn away from our sin and turn to the living God. Go to the next one. Here's Mark chapter six, verse 12. So Jesus sends out his apostles. What do they do? Well, they went out and proclaimed that people should believe, right? No, repent. The first thing they say to you, you have to repent of your sins. Go to the next one. Uh, Here is Luke chapter 13, verses three or five. This is Jesus speaking. He says, no, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 who are on whom the tower and Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. These are the verses that we kind of forget about that come out of Jesus' mouth. We assume he doesn't say things like this. Look, it's right there. He's saying, unless you repent, you will die. He's telling it to his clean. No, go to the next one. Uh, here is... Um, Oh, this is Jesus after the resurrection. So now he's resurrected, sending his apostles out again. Look what he says. He says, then he says to him, these are the words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written, here's the gospel, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. 
We have to repent. And look, it doesn't stop there. So here, let's get into what Peter does when he goes and preaches. And 3,000 people are going to get saved. He does this sermon and look what happens. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. When somebody asked Peter's blank, clear, what do we do? Repent, first step in the process. Here's Paul uh, moving on to Romans. He says, do you suppose, oh man, that you who judge those who practice such things and yet you're doing them yourself, do you suppose that you're gonna escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Look, those are uncomfortable words for some of us. Adam, I don't like a God of wrath. Listen, you absolutely like a God of wrath. You want a God of wrath. You know why? We are his children. And when we get wounded, I need to know that God gets mad about it. You hurt my daughter, I'm going to be furious. I will come at you. I will be enraged, okay? Why do you not think God would not be enraged when sin has killed his people? When you're wounded, when you're hurt. Do you not want to know that God is also angry at the sin that's been perpetrated against you? But that means that he's also angry at the sin that we perpetrate against others. He's holy. He can't overlook it, which means that we too must repent. P.S. If you're just sinning and you think you're getting away with it, you got a hard and penitent heart and you're stored up wrath for yourself. The day comes. Don't ignore it. Do you not see what the Lord is, is showing us through all of these scriptures? He says, look, this is, this is painful. It is painful to acknowledge my sin. It, it is painful to acknowledge that I'm wrong. But here's the great news. But there's mercy for you. He said, Adam, I'm scared of repenting. I'm scared of admitting that I'm wrong. Whatever, that wrath, it, it falls on me. And this is where you look to the cross of Jesus Christ. This is what makes us who we are as believers We are not people trying to do penance. We're not people running over here just to obedience and trying to work off our sin. No, we have a great good news. When you hear the bad news of our sin, you get the good news of the gospel that though we are sinners, Jesus Christ gave his life for us. When I didn't deserve it, Jesus Christ paid for my sin. Sin is serious. Sin is real. Sin costs the life of Jesus. And because he loves me so much, when I was lost in my sin, Jesus Christ died and gave his life for me. When I come and admit my sin to the Father, I never have to worry about being cast away. I am forgiven and accepted, not because I've worked it off, not because I'm good enough, I can't be, but simply because of his love, by grace, I have been saved through faith. This is the mercy of God. This is what cleanses us. Look, it's hard to repent. It's hard to admit that we're wrong. But when you come here, I never have to fear that God's going to abandon you or cast you aside or, or you, you've done it. it your, your worst sins are worse somehow. They're not. He knows they have been paid for. Would you simply come and receive the mercy of God? 
Look at 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. He says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. You see why we can't say, I've always been a Christian. Nope, I'm a sinner. Saved by Jesus. But man, when I confess, man, he's faithful. He's just. Forgives us and cleanses us. This is what we receive when we repent. This is why we have to start with repent and not just at abide. So look, for all of us in this room, there's one or two places that we find ourselves. For some of you, um, you have never been uh, a true believer in Jesus Christ. You've danced around him. Uh, You've talked about him. You've prayed some in your life. But you've never come to a place of full surrender where you've recognized that you were a sinner and that you need to surrender your life to Jesus. Look, some of you got saved when you were young, right? You didn't have to know everything when you got saved young, but you, you knew you were a sinner saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. But for some of us, we've never done that. And for you, today can be the day, not just of repentance, but of salvation, where you can stop trying to run from the Lord, stop being afraid of him, stop trying to work it off and receive the mercy and grace of God. Others of you in this room, you say, Adam, I'm a believer, but you were engaged in an ongoing, unrepentant sin. I'm not talking about the ones you just get to wrestle with and you're working on it. I mean, you, you know it's wrong. We talked about these last week. And you say, I, Adam, I, I know it's wrong. I don't want anybody else to know. I'm not going to tell you. But, but we all, God knows it's wrong. I know it's wrong. Okay, then it's time to repent. It's time to finally say, I am wrong And I will stop. I have to turn away and ask God to do what I cannot do. And we all are there. Remember, constant life of repentance. He is pruning us. So let me tell you how to do that. Here's the four steps of that process. First off, you examine yourself. We examine ourselves. If you've never done this or haven't done it in a while, just take a look and say, God, is there anything wrong in me? Here's a prayer I pray often. It's in Psalm 139, the last couple verses. It says this, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. I, I memorized this years ago. You can, I would encourage you to do the same. Just two verses. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me, know my anxious thoughts is how the NIV translates it. And see if there be any grievous way in me. He's, you're basically opening up saying, God, what am I missing? What am I missing? Where have I drifted into sin and, and I don't even know it? Where, where have I, where have I, I'm just constantly doing something wrong and I'm not even aware of it. I've, I've hardened my heart. God, look at me and see. I can be a scary prayer. I can be a hard prayer. But remember, God's not doing this in wrath to smash you. He's trying to prune you, to heal you, to put you back on the path of fruitfulness, to joy. And I gotta find it over there. So will I open myself and say, God, just look. And be willing to open your eyes and see, God, what, search me by your scriptures and show me. Here's the second thing. You have to admit you're wrong. This is not fun. It's not fun to admit we're wrong. It's not fun to have to say, I didn't get it right. Look, I tried this. I thought I was doing the right thing. I thought I had this under control. I thought I'd game the system. I thought I was okay. I thought it was cool for me when it's not for everybody else. And I was wrong. It's hard. No one likes to admit that. I don't like to admit that. But this is the only pathway back. I I can't turn around until I admit, hey, hey, what I was doing was wrong. 
Not just not helpful, not just not great, wrong. And God, I, I have no excuse. I have to admit it. This is key to repentance. I have to agree with the Lord that he is right and we are wrong. He's God and I am not. He's in control. I am not. I got to admit I'm wrong. Here's the third thing. You need to receive mercy. Now, strangely, this can be just as hard as the second step. Because for some of us, we don't want to receive mercy. What I'd like to receive uh, is my pride back. This is why we do the rededication thing we talked about last week. I want to skip abide. I want to skip repentance. And I just want to work it off myself. I want to fix it myself. God, I get it. I did some wrong things. But you know what? I'm working on it. Going to pay you back. Going to make you proud. You're going to see I'm a really good person. I got this. Don't really need you to be in control because I got it on my own. Well, with repentance, you can't do that. With repentance, I got to admit I'm wrong. And then I have to receive mercy while I sit in this wrong state. I, I don't wait until I'm, I'm better. I just get to receive mercy and say, I don't deserve it. I don't deserve the love of God, and yet he gives it to, to me anyway. I haven't earned the love of God. I haven't fixed it. And God gives it to me anyway. What an amazing grace that he gives to us. We need to receive mercy. When you finally receive that, it's so freeing. It cleanses us from unrighteousness. And then here's the last step. We change. We change. I can't stay in the land of disobedience and follow the Lord towards joy. I can't keep doing what I'm doing that's wrong and expect to see a difference. And so there has to be quantifiable change in my life. If I'm doing this thing, I stop doing it. If I've been avoiding this thing I'm supposed to do, I start to do it, okay? If I'm, if I'm acting a certain way, I gotta stop acting that way. If I need to be doing something, I start doing that thing. Whatever it is, and I don't know what your issue is. We all got different issues. This might be something that you're doing, something that you're saying. This could be something that, about how the way that you treat others. It might be an activity you're involved in. This could be some sin like lust or greed or anger or, or, or slothfulness or vanity or pride. But when we see these things, I admit it. I receive the mercy of God and I say, God, you gotta help me change. But I, I'm not gonna go back to the old ways. God, help me change. And when I follow after you, I will find life. The pathway to spiritual joy starts with repentance. And so this is why we're going to come to the table today and celebrate communion. Jesus offers us this table as a continual exercise to proclaim his salvation, but also as a reminder to us of where real life comes from. Real life doesn't come from us. Real life comes from him. And in just a moment, we're going to do something special where we're going to pass out these elements, this, this bread and this cup. And as we come to the table, I hope that you will take this seriously because think about what God is doing here. There's two things we need to understand at this table. First off, he's saying this, I'm gonna give you my body, this bread. In order for you to be saved, my body had to be broken. If you underestimate sin, if you're trying to minimize it, the table kills all of that. He said, hey, to save you from your sin, my body had to be broken for you. My blood had to be spilled. I died a real death for your sins. Uh, this is for you. This is how serious your sin is. And so stop making excuses. Stop uh, sugarcoating it. Uh, stop making you know, qualifications why it's okay for you or what, what, what isn't as bad as what other people did. Hey, admit it. My sin 
caused the death of Jesus Christ. But then also realize Jesus is giving this to you. He's saying, I choose to do this because I love you. I am giving this to you. I am not mad at you. I'm trying to save you. I'm going to die on the cross because I love you and I am offering you myself. Would you receive the love of God? Whether for the first time today because you've never surrendered your life to the Lord or anew today as you repent from whatever it is that you're dealing with, let's today recognize the severity of my sin but the overwhelming magnitude of God's love for us as we receive again his body and blood, the bread and the cup that he gives to us. And so I'm gonna ask my deacons to go ahead and come forward, if you will. The worship team's gonna come back forward as well. In just a moment, I'm going to pass out these elements, and please understand, uh, everyone here is welcome to participate today as long as you're a believer in Jesus Christ. Um, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, out of respect for the Lord and respect for us, we would just ask you to, to abstain today, but I wonder if today you might just want to partake of communion as an act of faith for the very first time to say, no, I believe in the Lord, and I need Him to save me. I kind of thought I had to work it off, and maybe today you can just receive in faith the salvation of Jesus Christ. We wouldn't want anybody to be excluded. If there's any kids in the room, kids look to your parents and they'll help you understand whether you're ready for this or not. Uh, it's a special thing that we do here today. But let's all approach the table in faith, in humility, and receive what the Lord gives to us. The Lord says on the night before he was crucified, he took bread and he broke it. Okay. Uh, he took bread and he broke it. He passed to his disciples and said, this is my body that is broken for you. The next day, as Jesus hung on the cross, they saw the magnitude of God's love for them. Let's remember that. Heavenly Father, thank you for the love that you give us. Father, it would be so easy. You would be well within your rights just to have said, hey, meet the mark, and if you don't meet the mark, tough. Try hard, and if you don't make it, it's on you. But you knew we'd never win. You knew we'd never fail. You knew we'd all be lost. And you'd still be right to have left us there. And yet you came and gave your life for sinners like us. And Lord, we're so grateful. And so for me, my brothers and sisters in the room, and even for the people who have yet to put their faith in you in this room, Lord, we thank you for the amazing sacrifice that you would allow your body to be broken for us. We love you. In your name we pray.